You know our readings today is 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, through, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever whoever gathered little had no lack. So ends today's reading. In case you were here last Sunday, by the way, and you're thinking, didn't we already read that passage of scripture? The answer is yes. And that is the same reason why we don't stop reading our Bibles once you've already read through the whole Bible, right? It's not like, I did that. There's always more to see. So imagine this scenario. Imagine this, okay? Imagine that you pull up to the ATM at your local bank, pick, pick whatever bank you use, Insert your debit card, you, you know, type in your PIN number, fast cash, whatever, press 100 bucks, only to hear the following audio recording come out of the little tiny pole speaker thing on the metal front of the ATM. I'm sorry, I won't give it to you. I have other plans for that money. Have a nice day. I've never experienced that. But I tell you what, 
I'm confident that if most of you did, you would not go quietly into the night. Oh, well, well, you too. You know, it's like, no, I don't think so. You would raise a ruckus. You would ask to speak to a real person. Call the bank manager. And rightly so. After all, it's not the ATM's money. Right? It's yours. You entrusted it to the bank, and it's their job to do with your money whatever you tell them to do with your money, including giving back however much you desire whenever you desire it, because it is yours. Deuteronomy 10, verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. Job 41, verse 11. Who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. says God. What what do those verses tell us, friends? Really simple. God owns everything. You don't own anything. All the money in your bank account right now, all the possessions in your home, the car that you use to drive here today, it's, it's all his. Which means you're what? You're not an owner. You're a steward. You've been entrusted, told to take care of something that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to someone else. It belongs to God. But how do we tend to think? Right? What, what do we tend to think? We tend to think our money is what? Well, our money. <laughs> and if you're a good Christian, you'll give a portion of it back to God to support the work of the church, provide for the poor, finance frontier missions. I mean, it's the least I can do after all God's given to me. But, but once I do that, the rest of it is mine. Free to do with it, whatever I want. I mean, don't be a jerk. Give God his due share but then the rest is mine. Do whatever I want with the rest. Let's go back to the ATM, okay? I'm not sure any of you would be any happier if the ATM said, okay, you make a good point. You ask for $100, and because you've been good to me lately and I'm I'm feeling really generous, here's 10 bucks. Bloop, then the door goes, Receipt. What? You know, I don't think you'd be any less hot if it popped out 10 bucks. Why not? Because it's all your money. The ATM doesn't own any of it. And nor do we, my friends. Nor do we, right? 
which is why the Bible teaches us over and over again that worshiping God with our money means what? Using all of it to love God and love our neighbor. Over and over again, Scripture teaches us that. And and we began talking last week about the purpose of money as part of our Sunday Matters series. So one of the most important things, and I would argue one of the most difficult things Jesus tells us to do when we gather as the church is to worship him by giving. That giving isn't about paying the bills or keeping the lights on. Giving generously to the Lord on Sunday should be what? The overflow, Kevin alluded to this earlier in what he was sharing when we were singing, the overflow of worshiping God with all of it by using it to love him and love our neighbor all week long. That's the big idea in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. So think of it this way, the biblical purpose of money, you ever wonder what that is? Purpose of money, it doesn't just exist, it has a purpose. Isn't to acquire and store up more and more wealth for yourself. It's not the biblical purpose of money. Okay, the biblical purpose of money, after providing for ourselves and our dependents, is to have something to give. To meet the spiritual and physical needs of others. Because when we give to them, what does Jesus tell us? We're giving to the Lord. And he will richly reward you when you do that. And Paul helps us recognize as much by by laying out a series of biblical principles in these verses. So at the outset of this sermon, let me admit defeat. To my community group, you were right Thursday night. I can't do it. I said last week there were nine principles in here. Don't look at me. I can feel their eyes. Most of them sit over here. I said there were nine principles in here that we were going to cover. I managed to get to three last week. We're going to have to stop at seven this Sunday, and then I will blog the rest or something, okay? But we're going to focus on verses one to nine because I would rather linger on a few things than just crash through a bunch, okay? Because my heart needs that too. So can call Just chalk that up to a selfish call. But what did we learn last Sunday? Okay, quick review. What did we learn? First, we learned that God is the ultimate giver. He's the ultimate giver. Okay, everything we have, we're just talking about this, everything we have, including the ability, the power, or what Paul calls grace in verse 1, to use that to love him and love our neighbor, that comes from the Lord. It's a gift of grace, expression of undeserved favor. Okay, second, we learned last Sunday that generosity is the fruit of surpassing joy. Remember, we talked about what kind of soil does the plant of generosity actually grow and thrive in? It's the fruit of surpassing joy. So I said, really observed, that we gladly spend money. I mean, we, we'll just, here, want some more? And it's like the chance card of Monopoly, throw it up in the air, go for it. We gladly do that on whatever brings us the most joy, period. Which means you won't discover freedom to stop loving money and start loving God with your money unless Jesus is your surpassing joy. Third, we learned that giving that pleases God is proportional and voluntary. So the Lord, in other words, is less focused on how much you give 
and more focused on how much you keep. The emphasis in Scripture isn't on the dollar amount of your gift relative to others. It's about what that gift represents of all that God in his perfect wisdom has entrusted to you. That's the point. And that's what made the example of the churches in Macedonia that sets up this whole passage so compelling when Paul talks about how they were faithful to generously give to support the churches in Judea. Look at 2 Corinthians 8 verse 3. What did the Macedonians do? For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. When was the last time you begged to give? What do we associate begging with? Getting! Right? I mean, you think if you're begging, you're what? Give to me. Give to me. The gospel of Jesus Christ flips that entire thing on its head. And so instead of being a people who beg to get, to take, we become a people who beg to give. Well, why is that? Look at verse 5. Here we'll pick up with principle number 4. Principle four, giving our money starts with giving ourselves. Giving our money starts with giving ourselves. Look at verse five. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God, as part of that, to us, to others. First to the Lord, and then as an expression of that, to others. Well, Jesus' words in in Matthew 22, he has an exchange with a Jewish lawyer there, really help us understand what Paul's getting at here. So, so listen to what, what went down in Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus was asked. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what is Jesus saying? And what is Paul getting at in verse 5 when he says, they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. Well, think about this, okay? Friend, when you turn away, when you turn away from loving sin, turn away from that, from, from making the pleasures and possessions of this world your greatest treasure, and you turn toward loving and following Jesus, making him your greatest treasure, By the way, that's what it means to be a Christian, okay? Turn from that to this. You don't just give part of yourself to Jesus. You give all of yourself to Jesus. Now, you can try to hold a part back, but here's the deal. If you haven't given all, you haven't made that turn. Jesus didn't create part of you for himself. He didn't die on a cross to redeem part of you from sin and death. He created all of you. He redeems all of you. And his claim on us as Lord and Savior is utterly comprehensive. Which means, please hear this. Jesus isn't looking for your religious affiliation. He's not a political candidate with a website 
and a really good message that seems to work in every age. That's cool. And he's just trying to acquire followers. No, he's not looking for affiliation. He's not looking for Sunday attendance. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I'm coming back to church. Check it out. <laughs> no, Jesus wants, don't stop doing that, but Jesus wants all of you, right? He wants your heart. He wants your affections. Only if you're willing to give all of yourself to him will he give all of himself to you. It's called losing your life for his sake. What does Matthew 16 verse 24 say? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, lays it down for my sake, will find it. You want want to know why the Macedonians devoted their money to the Lord's priorities and purposes? You want to know why that happened? It's because they had already devoted themselves. Think about that. They gave their money because they had given themselves, which is precisely what being a Christian is all about. Giving ourselves to Jesus, surrendering our life to Jesus. Why? Because he purchased us at the cost of his own blood. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So here's the key connection, okay? Here's the connection. When we give ourselves to Jesus, we're also giving ourselves to his body, That's the point of verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Notice, giving first to the Lord and then to others, they weren't disconnected. To give yourself to the Lord and to his will for your life is to give yourself to loving your neighbor. They're two sides of the same coin. I love how James Petty says, "In, in giving themselves to the Lord, the Macedonians gave themselves to God's people. That's right. Their fellowship, communion, and union with God drove their fellowship, communion, and union with others, with one another. You can't say you have given yourself to the head, Jesus Christ, if you haven't also given yourself to his body, the church. You don't get to pick the head and cut off the body and put it in a closet. (laughs) If you give yourself to God, you give yourself to his people, to one another. So so just think about this, okay? Imagine I said to you, brother, sister, I am committed to loving you. I'm committed to loving you. But whenever your children are in need, I never care for them. I never give what I have to provide for their needs, your kids, okay? Okay? What would you conclude? I don't think you really love me. You say that, but I don't think you do. But, but what if the opposite happens? Whenever a friend or a family member in my life makes a significant financial sacrifice to, to bring spiritual or physical care for one of my boys, what do I feel as a dad? What do you feel as a parent? You feel like they just loved you in the best way imaginable, Right? Because in loving them, they were loving you. Our our love for God the Father and the spiritual children he has adopted through faith in the Son is no different, friends, 
You can't give yourself to the Lord and not give yourself to his people. It's a package deal. Which means something isn't quite right when we read a scripture like Acts 2 verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And our first thought is, please tell me why that verse can't mean what it appears to mean. You tracking with me? They, they were selling their possessions and belongings. Okay, okay, so before I can even wade into that, somebody put up a great big fence wall that increases my comfort level and tell me up front that can't mean what it appears to mean. Well, Luke isn't saying that they impoverished themselves for the sake of others. He's saying that instead of storing up possessions and belongings for themselves, what did they do? They devoted them to meeting the needs of others. Why? Why would they do that? Because they recognized that giving themselves to the Lord meant giving themselves to one another. So when it comes to loving God and our neighbor, giving our money starts with giving ourselves both directions. Okay, John Frame gets it right. I love this. After all, if you've given yourself away to the Lord and to your brothers and sisters, it shouldn't be too hard to give your wealth. And if it is hard, you should consider, have I actually given myself to start with? Principle four. Giving our money starts with giving ourselves. Number five, look at verse six here. Giving is a spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual discipline. And we, we think carefully about what that means, okay? In verse six, look there. Paul tells the Corinthians how he urged one of his coworkers in the gospel, Titus, to lead their church in preparing this, collecting this offering for the saints in Judea. And, and he beautifully describes their gifts, their giving, as an act of grace. And then he writes in verse 7, but as you excel, Corinthians, in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What, what does it mean to excel in something? What would you say? I think it means to, not crazy, right? To do it well. And to do it so well that you're setting an example for other people to follow. Well, the Corinthians prided themselves on excelling in their practice of manifestly supernatural spiritual gifts. That included things like prophecy and tongues and words of knowledge, etc. And, and truth be told, they didn't excel as much as they thought they excelled. <laughs> Go read 1 Corinthians. They had issues, a lot of them. Nonetheless, what does Paul do? He recognizes the way they have pursued and excelled in all manner of godly virtues. And the ones he singles out here, this is fascinating, seem directly connected to the practice of spiritual gifts, such as faith or speech. So he's telling the Corinthians, guys, I see it. You've worked hard to be faithful in these areas of the Christian life. For that, I commend you. And that is exactly what you need to do over here in this area called giving that you've neglected. You've excelled here. Now I want you to excel there. That's what he's saying to them as a pastor. 
And notice how he calls the giving that he summons them to an act of grace. What does that mean? Well, it's an act of grace in the sense that it requires grace, right? God must provide the money to give, the power to give it. And it's an act of grace in the sense that it gives grace. Those who benefit from the gift will receive it, rightly received, as an expression of God's undeserved favor in their life. And yet, this is what I want us to see, the fact that it's an act of grace doesn't render us passive. You know, sometimes we can think like this to ourselves, right? If God wants to break in and tell me in an audible voice to give money to someone, I'm on standby. Ready and willing. He hasn't done that in 30 years, but you know, I'm ready and willing. It's, it's easy to live like that, right? We, we kind of, let's just be honest, okay? We're tempted to quiet our conscience by saying, I am willing to give as the Lord leads. How about you? Oh yeah, I'm willing. How about you? Me too. We're willing. But we rarely, if ever, pray for opportunities to give sometimes. And sometimes we we even fail to do the work necessary to seek them out. We forget that giving isn't a grace from God that hits us up the side of the head or periodically just kind of seizes control of my wallet. You know, it's, giving is an act of grace. And one day my wallet jumped out of my pocket and like opened as if there were divine hands and money just started coming out. An act of grace. That was crazy. Has that ever happened to you? No. Okay, it's never happened to me. I doubt that's going to happen to you. It's an act of grace in the sense that it requires careful planning, hard work, and initiative on our part which goes far beyond just I'm available and willing to help as the Lord leads and smacks me up the side of the head. <laughs> so think about it, okay? In investing financially in the work God is doing to, to meet the spiritual and physical needs of the people around you is no less an act of spiritual discipline than prayer or reading your Bible or evangelism or sexual purity. So, so what do we do? We read books on those disciplines, Right? We, we go to conferences to learn more about those disciplines. We, we talk with one another about how we're doing in those disciplines. And we challenge each other to keep growing and excel in our practice of them. So when was the last time you read a book on the discipline of giving? The grace of giving. Wait, when was the last time you prayed, Lord, help me to excel in the grace of giving? Or, or when was the last time you, you talked with another Christian? about how each of you were doing in loving God and your neighbor with all your money. I think part of our reticence to go there, if that's a fair word, is that in our culture, money is a very private matter, right? So we learned very early on, you don't ask people how much they make. Just like you don't ask an older woman how old she is. You just learn these things. And you don't... Tell other people how much you make. It's personal. So let's think about that. That cultural habit is good to the extent it's the fruit of modesty. 
humility. But it's bad to the degree it's the fruit of thinking, my money is my money. That's personal. It is that of which we do not speak. And we can wind up having a functional grace of giving. Oh, that's in the don't ask, don't tell box. That's not good. So, what might excelling in the act of grace, of giving, look like for us? Well, I would suggest it starts with having the courage and humility to have honest conversations with each other as Christians about this topic instead of wholesale buying into our cultural idea that it's just private and personal, don't go there, don't touch there, don't talk there. That's me. Stop it. So what might that sound like? Brother, sister, is it, is it hard for you to give generously? What, like, do you see an opportunity I missed? Why are you asking? No, like, I just asked you how you were doing honoring God with your sexuality, and this is another big area of the Christian life, so why are you freaking out? You, you know? How did you decide, sister, what giving according to your means and beyond your means looks like for you and your family? Help me out with that. Or where are you tempted to be selfish? Or are you being active or passive and looking for opportunities to give? Or, or maybe, brother, you told me last, last week when we chatted, the Lord gave you a huge bonus last month. I have just been rejoicing in that all week long and God's blessing on your life, if you can say that honestly, right? But I was thinking as I was praying for you, what's your plan to be generous with that? That would be really hard for me. What, how are you thinking through that stewardship? We need to have conversations like that and ask how we can pray for each other in this area. So, so if your giving has largely been on autopilot for years, but please don't assume, friends, that the Lord wants you to give in the same way in 2020 that you did in 2019, okay? And if, if you're a married couple, take time to talk with your spouse about this. Okay? Regardless of whether you're married or not, take time to pray. If we're going to excel in something, it's going to require what? Work. Hard work. Initiative. Conversation. Just like every other area of the Christian life. And by the way, for those of you who are already excelling in the grace of giving, I want to tell you something very important. Okay? Do not think that sharing a testimony done humbly, of how God is enabling you to give generously is categorically boastful, arrogant, and off limits. Does that make sense? We can think, oh, I'll gladly tell my friend how I am learning to read my Bible more often, and I'm growing through that. Praise God for that. We all celebrate, but, but money's kind of personal, and, and generosity's personal, and Humility doesn't hide stories about how God is working in your life. Don't do that. Humility celebrates where the Lord is helping us to excel. So what's the big point? Giving isn't a box we check, folks. It's a discipline that we strive to excel in together. It's a spiritual discipline. Look at verse 8, number 6. Giving is compelled by the law of love. What does Paul say? I say this not as a command, 
but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. I say this not as a command. Thank you, Jesus. That's good news, Paul, because I was starting to get really worried. I mean, all all this like extreme poverty overflowing in a wealth of generosity talk, my guilt level was just growing by the minute. It's really nice to know all this is just a suggestion. And that there are multiple approaches that work for different people. The Macedonians, I mean, wow, what a great example. Such a good word, Sunday. Incredible example, amazing. I'm just grateful the Lord isn't commanding me to follow them. Isn't it funny how our hearts can seize on stuff like that? I say this not as a command. Well, that's not what Paul means, okay? You could probably sense that. What's he doing? He's reminding the Corinthians, I want you to listen very carefully here, of the fact that the basis for giving under the new covenant, in the new kind of intimate relationship with God, Jesus has made possible through his life, death, and resurrection, isn't, the basis for giving under the new covenant, isn't a specific law like the laws Israel was obligated to keep under the old covenant. What law was the people, were the people of Israel obligated to keep? Malachi 3 verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You were cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Israel, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Why did God say that? Because the giving God required of Israel was crystal clear. It consisted of a tithe of their wealth. So in an agrarian society, you can go back and read Deuteronomy 14. That meant giving a tenth of all their produce and livestock to the Lord to support what? The annual feast the ministry of the Levites in the temple, as well as the needs of the sojourner, fatherless, or widow. Some people argue that it was one tithe for an annual total of 10% for multiple purposes. Other people argue that there were actually multiple tithes for multiple purposes, totaling well over 20% annually. But regardless of where that shakes out, it's clear Tithing was a critical part of keeping the Mosaic law. And the Lord reprimanded his people for not doing that. But on this side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, something changes. Something changes. We are no longer under the Mosaic law because Jesus fulfilled the entire law on our behalf through his perfect obedience. Go read Matthew 5, verse 17. So before the coming of Christ, you enjoyed covenant relationship with God by observing the law. Okay, that did not mean that relationship with God in the Old Testament was legalistic, okay? The law was a gift of grace, right? In the sense that it ultimately pointed to who? To Christ. And so saints of old were saved by grace through faith, 
no less than we are today. Hear that. That might be new for some of you. But when Christ came and he perfectly fulfilled the law by perfectly obeying the law, he brought the law to an end in the sense that it ceased to define God's covenant relationship with his people. Go read Galatians 3. And so under the new covenant, what's up? Well, God no longer distinguishes his people, my people, not my people, my people, not my people, on the basis of their obedience to the law, the Mosaic law, but on the basis of their relationship to Christ. That's a change. And so the entire Mosaic law remains instructive and authoritative, but only as it is fulfilled and carried forward in Christ. We have to look back and read it and apply it in light of Jesus, which means what? The bar gets consistently higher, not lower. So to everyone who was thinking, oh my word, I thought, are you telling me I don't have to do anything in the Old Testament? Awesome! No. The bar gets higher, not lower. When we ask, how does this Old Testament principle, moral norm, apply to me, given the person work of Christ? Jesus consistently doesn't do away with the moral norms and ethical standards in the law. He takes them deeper by getting after our hearts. Example one, Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Lower or higher? Higher. (laughs) By a landslide. Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lower or higher? Higher. So what does all that have to do with tithing and giving? Well, there are faithful Christians who disagree with what I'm about to say. But friends, I do not see in the New Testament a single example of the command to tithe carried over as part of the new covenant under the law of Christ. What do we find instead? The freedom to do whatever the heck we feel like doing. No, no, right? What do we find instead? A repeated and exceedingly strong emphasis on loving God and loving our neighbor with all of our money. Lower or higher? Higher. Higher. For as Paul declared in Romans 13.10, love is the fulfilling of the law. Listen to James Petty again. There are no laws or formulas in this area of decision making about giving, except that God has set it up so that we determine our own future reaping by our personal free decisions about sowing. Our love models God's. 
and that it is freely offered, not under compulsion or law, which helps us understand why in the New Testament you won't find a minimum or maximum for giving. But if that causes you to conclude, friend, thank God I'm no longer under that burden. Now I can just give whenever I have a little left over. You are sorely mistaken. Because Jesus doesn't replace tithing with radio silence. What does he do? He tells us to give generously as he's given to us, right? To love as we have been loved. So think about this. If Jesus replayed, I'm going to, a little bit of conjecture here, but I think our hearts recommend the wisdom of this. If Jesus had replaced the tithe with a new percentage, or just explicitly come out and said, you know what? You want balance? 10%. Let's go with that what would we be tempted to do? Oh, how much do I have to give? 10%? Uh, okay. Here's my check. Check the box. Move on. Duty done. And now I can do whatever I want with the 90% pile. I think we'd be tempted to do that because we're always looking for what's the, right? What do I have to do to pass the test? What do you want? Okay, here's your check. No, but, but what does the Lord say? 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And listen, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You know how often that's quoted out of context? <laughs> What's the good work in context? Giving. So the question isn't, how much do I have to give? That's what people under the law think like. The question is rather, how much can I give? How can I abound in the work of giving? We, we don't get to give 10% and then just sort of give ourselves a pass, like going through some sort of sanctifying toll booth. Whew, that was hard, but now I'm on to bigger and better things. No. No, in every season of our life, no matter how much you're making, you have to do the hard work of going to the Lord and saying, Lord, how can I abundantly and generously love you and love my neighbor with all the money you've given me? How can I fulfill the law of love? How can I be generous? How can I be generous in providing for the spiritual and physical needs of others through the financial support I give? Because giving isn't compelled by a command to tithe. It's compelled by the law of love. And it is, look at verse 8, one of the most important ways we demonstrate that our love for God and one another is Genuine. One more favorite quote here from David Garland. Words expressing love come cheaply and can be faked. No kidding. Genuine love shows up in the checkbook. He's right. He's right. And, and let's be honest, brothers and sisters. Do we have more reason or less reason to give abundantly and generously on this side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Way more. If the Old Testament saints under the Old Covenant had reason, we have immeasurably more. So if you're looking for a practical recommendation, I think we do well to think of 10%, a 
tithe as a starting line, not a finish line. Jesus held nothing back from us. Following him means following his example. Let's end with this final point, seven. The gospel reveals the purpose of wealth. The gospel reveals the purpose of wealth. Look at verse nine. We need to fix our gaze here, church, and not look away. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you realize that when the Lord commands us to worship God with all of our money by using it to love him, love our neighbor, he is not telling us to do something that he has not already done himself. You ever had somebody tell you to do something and you just thought, hypocrite? You don't do that, Dad. You don't do that, Mom. No. Not unless you will. God is not a hypocrite, friends. He leads us by example. He motivates us by example. He shows us what it looks like to take all that we are and all that we have and give it and lay it down for the glory of God the Father and the good of his people. He takes us to a stable in Bethlehem. And he invites us to look there and consider what he has done until his work shatters the selfishness and pride in our hearts. Philippians 2 verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about this, friend. What did Jesus do with his wealth? What did he do? What did he do with the the heavenly splendor that he knew from eternity past? The one who, who dwelt in unimaginable light. The one before whom seraphs and, and angels hide their eyes. The mighty one, the, the God of all the universe, surrounded with cries before time began. Of, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and was and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. Perfect peace, mind-shattering beauty, awesome splendor, born as a man. That's what he did with his wealth, to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, to save you from your slavery to false gods like money and to satisfy your soul in him and in his glory and his love and his goodness 
so that day by day, your hands are freed from clinging on to your money. And instead of loving money, you begin bit by bit, like a baby learning to walk, because that's what growth and change in this life looks and feels like, to actually worship God with your money. Jesus didn't give of himself to you. He gave himself to you. Through his person and work, God himself has given us his righteousness and his life and his glory and his joy and the new heavens and the new earth and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Think about it. If God has it, he's done what? Given it. He's held nothing back. Do you know that is what Satan tempted Eve and Adam to believe in the garden? He's holding something back. God doesn't hold anything back because he's not a God who takes. He's a God who gives. He's been giving for all eternity. 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 9, actually, verse 9. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What's that harvest? It's not earthly healing. It's not a bigger house. It's not a new BMW or a private jet or anything else that you might be promised on TV. It's a spiritual harvest of men and women who come to faith in Jesus and are transformed more and more into his image because you have faithfully given year after year, decade after decade, trusting God that as you give to support the work of gospel ministry, he will use that to bear eternal reward. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. If, if God has enriched you, friend, if he's given you more than you need to provide for yourself and your dependents, then know this, the rest isn't yours to keep. The rest is yours to give because that's the biblical purpose of money. The goal of our wealth after providing for ourselves and our dependents is having something to give. Why? Because Jesus didn't cling to his riches. He laid them down so that you might become rich. Jesus didn't tithe on his wealth. He gave it all. So I charge you, go and do likewise. Worship God by loving him and loving your neighbor with all of your money. As John Calvin said, there cannot be a sure rule or a stronger exhortation to the observance of it than when we are taught that all the endowment which we possess are divine deposits entrusted to us for the very purpose of being distributed for the good of our neighbor. That that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Exactly, friend. So may the Lord help us to, to give generously and cheerfully to the support of the church, to the relief of the poor, to the discipleship of the nations. If, if you're willing to do that, friend, 
Great will be your reward in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we love how you remind us through Paul that this benefits us. <laughs> so true, Lord. This whole act of grace called giving, it, Lord, it really does ultimately benefit us. Help us to remember that. Father, we believe that if you already own everything, you don't need us or our money as if you were dependent on us or our money. You were wholly self-sufficient and gloriously so. So, Father, when we consider your kindness and giving us the privilege of being used by you to take what you've given and to give it back, not because you need it, but because you want to use that process of receiving and giving, receiving and giving, receiving and giving, receiving and giving, to make us more like you. That's stunning, Lord. That's stunning. And I pray that instead of thinking about the grace of giving, worshiping you with all of our money as a duty or an obligation or a box we have to check or a law we have to fulfill, that it would be like the Macedonians. We want to be those who beg for the privilege of giving. Because in doing that, we get to know you. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, that you did not tithe on your wealth. Help us even as we sing and then share the Lord's Supper today to remember that and live like you. Amen.